the first cut in the dividend uh, since World War Two. Do you feel the weight of history then as you as you make this decision at Shell? It is a uh, it's of course a difficult day, but on the other hand, uh, it is also an inevitable moment. The UK's biggest lenders, Barclays, HSBC, Lloyds, Santander, were due to pay out a total of over £15 billion to shareholders. But they've now bowed to the pressure and agreed to hold on to that cash as the UK enters its second full week of lockdown. It is not a good time for UK dividends. 109 FTSE 350 companies have cut their dividends so far in 2020, with a further 132 expected by the time the year is over. And as we heard in those sound bites, there have been some biggies. Income giant Shell, which last year distributed over £25 billion in dividends and share buybacks to shareholders, cut its dividend by two-thirds. You heard its chief executive, Ben Van Buren, say that the cut was an inevitable moment, but it has felt like this inevitable moment has been a long time coming for many big income payers. The financial sector, dominated by the big banks in the UK, has taken a massive beating as regulation forced many companies to trim their dividends. The repercussions for British investors are significant, which is why this week we have crunched the data to assess the outlook for income. And in this week's podcast, we will be joined by Algie Hall, Dave Baxter and Nalushi Karuna-Ratne to help explain how investors can cope with the situation. And if you're still not sure about how to deal with the dividend situation, head to the website where you'll have access to all the dividend data that we'll be discussing today and plenty of further advice on investing for income. We've set up a special podcast offer. Get four weeks of the Investors Chronicle in print and online for just £4. Go to investorschronicle.co.uk forward slash podcast sub, one word, and the link is in the show notes. I'm John Human, And I'm Megan Boxall. Welcome to the Investment Hour. So, Megan, I received a letter this week from one of our readers, uh, an 89-year-old reader who said to me, as a retail investor, the cancelling of dividends is quite serious for me. 40% of my retirement income comes from stocks and shares. Now, I'm sure he's not alone, and he's asking the question of why the government hasn't stepped in to bail out other pensioners who who may be in a similar position and, and dependent upon dividend income for retirement. It's a serious problem, and you've done some number crunching, which shows the extent of it this week. The number crunching is one thing. And I mean, I don't think people will be necessarily be surprised by the extent of dividend cuts because it has been, I mean, it's every single week, almost every single day, another company has cut its dividend. And yeah, when the when the Shell story, when Shell announced its dividend cut, that was, a, that was a big one and people were maybe surprised about that. But a lot of the other ones, I mean, as you said in the introduction, they have actually, some of them seem that feel like they've been quite a long time coming anyway. But I think the broader point that the reader's making, and it is a really interesting one, is that UK investors, not ne- even necessarily just pensioners, are really reliant on dividend income. And I mean, that's partly due to the fact that it's quite hard to find income anywhere else with interest rates so low, which is something we're going to talk to Dave about in a bit. But but yeah, there's there's a lot of people in the UK who are very reliant on equity income. And that's partly because UK companies have been extremely generous with paying dividends for a very long time. Dividends is what's been prioritised as what you do with surplus cash, rather than in in America, where the priority is much more, it's much more often on reinvesting the money back into the company, growing the company. I mean, dividend returns account for a huge proportion of overall returns in the UK. I mean, that's partly because growth has been pretty poor. And, but it's partly because there's a lot of companies paying massive, massive dividends. Mm, I think if you look at the FTSE 100, you know, over sort of longer term time periods, it, it really, if you take out the, the return from dividends, it's gone nowhere. Mm. Absolutely nowhere. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's lots of critics of, of this approach, which seems to be sort of part of the, the culture 
of of investing in the UK. You know, income. You know, we we write something about income. People people want to read it. Yeah. Um, but actually, it's not the only way of generating income. But it but it but it but it has. It has become the norm. Yeah, yeah, it has become the norm and, and the companies have allowed for that to happen. But yeah, the point about why UK income investors not being helped out when, yeah, a lot of other sectors are being helped out, it, it, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a really fair point because it's a, it's a lot of people, a lot of, yeah, especially pensioners who, who rely on this money and at the moment, it's kind of just going. The amount that um, investors are going to get this year compared to next year is, I mean, it's likely to be about half from UK investments. And because of the extent of the of the dividend cuts and the, and the big sectors, really, really massive payers, which is something that, that we'll talk about with Nalushi in a bit, sectors that people have relied on for a really long time as, as reliable income sectors. I mean, you could argue that if you are relying on these companies, these sectors for their dividends alone and for your income, you have done so in, in the knowledge that, you know, there is risk attached to that. Mm. But actually, you know, in many cases, the dividend has been held so sacrosanct by these companies that, that it's almost become, it almost become a, a sacred cow. And, you know, the idea that they were ever going to be cut um, was, was so far from people's minds. But, you know, as you say, we've seen some absolutely massive companies yeah. hang on to their dividends for years. Even when if you look at the underlying fundamentals, financial that business, they really should have been thinking about at least rebasing that dividend sometime well, before. Well, yeah, I mean, all the headlines after Shell cut its dividend were first dividend cut since World War Two, And, yeah, it was kind of just happy to spin that story, keep doing it. We, we've paid a dividend for, for this amount of years. It's something that companies... It's, it's often line one of annual results. This is the 75th year in a row that we've paid a dividend. Is that necessarily a good thing, considering, I mean, within Shell's case, in that time, the change in commodity prices... Should they really have been paying a dividend that consistently over such a such a volatile period? And and that's something that is now really significant. They've cut their dividend in a time where the outlook for commodities is is potentially more disrupted than it's ever been. Well, they use the word. I mean, they did cut it or trimmed it or whatever you want to call it. But they also talked of it as a rebasing. Mm-hmm. So there is this this other problem. So not only have they been cut. But if, if investors are expecting them to get back to where they were before and for this to be a sort of temporary blip in their income, that's not necessarily the case. And that's what your data has, yeah. uh, has strongly and, suggests as well. Yeah, that's what we've written about this week because I think a lot of people, I mean, depending on the economic recovery and the fact that lockdown is starting to lift and life feels like it's starting to get back to normal, there may be a lot of expectation out there that the dividends are going to come back. But yeah, this is, this is a prolonged period of of weakness because a lot of companies their dividends haven't been covered for a long time by By cash and earnings and by cash yeah but it's sort of this oh we can't cut it because we haven't cut it for 50 years that's kept them paying it now they've had an opportunity to cut it and i mean someone has said companies in 2020 are ensuring they don't waste a good crisis i mean when bbt cut its dividend if it had cut its dividend this time last year the share price would have absolutely tanked because that's the reason most people hold bt it kind of just hid its dividend cut amid the fact that everyone the world is going mad which also suggests that bt i mean bt has rebased and it's cut to zero this year and it's rebased i mean it's not coming back for a long time and and this the data that we put together sort of highlights in two years' time, how many companies are going to be paying a higher dividend than they've ever paid before? And it's not many. And of those, a lot of those forecasts still aren't covered. So I think there's more 
negative press to come around dividends. Yeah, I mean, it, it sounds like a uh, well, I mean, it's, it is a problem uh, and a problem that could uh, could get worse. Um, so I guess the question is, you know, what what do investors do? I mean, you know. Many retirees need income, mm-hmm. um, so so how how are they going to get it? And there is this idea floating around that that it's actually very different. The sort of the fundamental culture of the UK market, mm. the idea that that you take your income out of returns is a total reser- return approach to generating income, mm-hmm. as it were. And this is something that we discussed recently. It's, it's been discussed at length by Terry Smith. He, I mean, Terry Smith, the fund manager, uh, the the founder of Fund Smith Equity absolutely hates dividend investing he's a total return guy and it's uh, it's something that we discussed in a recent webinar we we conducted in association with net wealth perhaps we could hear from them so what are the different characteristics when thinking about income versus total return well the plus side for income investing it's very intuitive um, people know that uh, receiving a dividend stream is going to be a helpful component of uh, providing for you know, your investment objective. It's theoretically low risk. You're not taking any money out apart from the, the dividend stream, quite typically. However, we think that the risks really do um, outweigh some of those, uh, those positive characteristics. Not least the fact that it's for long in the UK been uh, a very overcrowded trade. And the problem here is that when people are investing for uh, what they think are safe assets, which provide a dividend stream, by, uh, by it being such a popular theme, the inherent characteristics change of the stocks that you're investing in. So those stocks, if they get driven up by price, which happened over the period of the past 10 years, um, really mean that they're not as defensive as um, people imagine them to be. The second reason is sort of related to that is uh, the fact that all of your um, investments are correlated to the same theme. So if you if you find yourself investing purely for dividend income, then you should know that the drivers of the performance of these different stocks will often be um, very correlated. They will all behave in the same way. Sometimes that can work out in a in a good way, and sometimes, as we've seen unfortunately this year, you can you can find that everything struggles at the same point in time. Uh, the third point is what John mentioned at the beginning: is the sustainability of that cash flow stream over a, a period of time. And you never know, just because um, uh, a company has been paying a steady stream um, thus far, and that's what the market expects to happen, that um, things can't change suddenly. Uh, the flip side, on a total return basis, offers you a lot more flexibility. You can try and build into portfolios uh, a sense of a lot of different drivers of returns. And inherently, that means that you'll have better diversification as well. Things to watch out for is that if you're investing in some growthier um, assets, perhaps there could be more periods of volatility as forecasts change. And perhaps that means a higher level of risk tolerance could be required uh, in terms of your mindset. Now, we would argue that that can be scaled back um, and calibrated as necessary by combining different um, uh, different uh, types of assets as needed. Importantly, however, if you're looking at a total return portfolio as you approach retirement, 
or as you're in a period of, of uh, say, drawdown, you need to have a withdrawal strategy. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in detail of how use of technology can make sure that um, you can still have a stream of cash flows available without relying purely on dividends. It's one of the things that the guys from NetWealth mentioned on that seminar was that, that whilst the idea of total return investing makes a lot of sense, you know, you're, you're getting your income out of growing companies and, and your pot is growing at the same time, it does create a sort of fear factor uh, amongst UK investors in particular who have just grown very used to the convenience of being able to just get their dividend check once a year. Mm. Total return investing feels like a lot more hard work. Mm. Um, you're managing things like lifetime allowance and you know, you're, you're trying to manage drawdown and and manage the risks of things like longevity and making sure you don't run out of cash. It is quite nerve-wracking. Yeah, and I think, as you say, when the comparison is getting a dividend check, and okay, maybe it's going to change every now and again, especially at a time like this, it does still feel like the easier option than, than managing the money yourself. But there are plenty of ways of actually taking income from investing, which is something that Dave Baxter can help us understand. Hi, Dave. Thanks. Thanks for joining us. I mean, equity income funds, so many people hold them. And so many of the fund managers who manage these equity income funds are looking at the same stocks. Um, and, and the stocks, which I mean, a lot of them are, are now are now starting to cut. And that's, that's a real problem for people who are who are holding these funds for, for, the, for the income, which is obviously what they're being sold as. Um, what, what can investors do? Hi, Megan. Yeah, it's very difficult. Um, as you said, a lot of the equity income funds are, I guess, hostage to the concentration in the market, the fact that, you know, a handful of stocks pay out most of the income. Um, so it's quite hard to get around. Um, there are, you know, some of the kind of big payers, there's been some analysis recently showed that um, some of the big payers like GSK, BAT, BP, um, Shell, Rio Tinto, they're all very widely held um, among the open-ended UK income sector. You can um, look at some of the funds in the sector which take a bit more of a uh, sort of multi-cap approach. Um, so, for example, one run by Gresham House, but there's a handful. Uh, they, if you look at their kind of top holdings, they have a very different composition to um, most of the sector. So you are getting um, a bit more diversification, and they are still managing to eke out some yields that look decent um, for the time being. But obviously, they will still be subject to some of the pressures. Um, what you could do, though, is simply look beyond the UK. Um, you can also look beyond equities. So first of all, you could look at um, global and other regional equity income funds. Um, so global, Asia, perhaps EM, uh, Japan, uh, US. So Asia in particular, um, they have uh, the funds there have some yields that are comparable to what has been on offer in the UK. Um, as we've discussed, there are still some risks and issues in Asia, um, many things to be aware of. Um, but Again, there's, there's a good growth story there. Perhaps it looks more attractive than the, the UK market in general. Um, so you can, to an extent, replace that yield. It's interesting looking overseas because, as we have, have discussed many times, the UK, it has this sort of focus on income, which, which maybe doesn't actually exist anywhere else. But that isn't necessarily, when we've talked about it loads, it's not necessarily a good thing. But actually, the cover of dividends, forecast dividends internationally, 
and there was some research that came out last week, is so much better in some of these overseas dividend payers than it is in the UK. The UK forecast dividend cover is the worst of any country or any region globally, even with the cuts that have come in in the last few months and the forecast cuts. Are there any international areas in particular that, that are particularly attractive in terms of both the yield and the security of those dividends? It's a good question. Um, again, I would say generally Asia has been forecast to look a bit more resilient. Um, so the, these cuts are going to obviously reverberate around the world. Um, you're not going to be immune from them. But there have been various forecasts of uh, kind of worst case scenarios. Um, UK tends to look most vulnerable. Um, but if you look at Asia... Um, that region has generally looked a bit worse off, even if things go as badly as they possibly could. Um, in terms of other regions, uh, some areas like the US look fairly resilient, but you are basically starting from a low base there because the US, for example, is um, a really growthy market, uh, very attractive on that front, but the actual yields that are paid are pretty low. Um, so in some of the worst case scenarios, the U.S. Um, companies are expected to basically uh, scrap buybacks, but broader dividends should be um, fairly safe. Uh, and the, I guess the kind of underlying growth should mean that in future things look a bit stronger than they do, particularly uh, compared with the U.K. Mm. What, what about um, exploring beyond the equity markets? Are there other asset classes that can perhaps offer the uh, the income that investors need to replace their lost dividends? Yeah, there are, there are lots of interesting options. Um, I could start, I could stick with so-called traditional markets, um, first of all. So you've, you've got bonds. Uh, if you look at corporate bonds, uh, corporate bonds have moved to uh, much higher yields, particularly in the sell-off, but some of them still look quite attractive. There are issues there. So uh, if you look at investment-grade bonds that are more defensive, then um, they were offering yields of something like 2.5%. Um, so that's, that's not going to replace what you may have expected from um, the UK. But uh, you can move instead to uh, areas like high yields and emerging market debt. Um, these are riskier areas, but the yields can be really quite attractive. Um, so at the height of the sell-off, um, the U.S. high yield market uh, on aggregate yielded something like 12%, uh, mm. which is huge. Um, and there is potential for um, some good capital returns as well. Uh, I guess what's interesting there, though, is um, you are taking sort of risk similar to that in the equity markets. Um, some... People are quite sceptical of bonds um, for income just because they view it as taking equity-like risks without all of the upside that you'll get from equities when things go well. Um, but you could include bonds as part of a bit of uh, an income portfolio. Um, one way that uh, perhaps would be a good route into that would be to use um, strategic bond funds just because they're very flexible. They can buy, you know, all across the bond market. So they could hold something like high yield EMD, get you a bit more yield from that. And then they could offset that risk by holding diversifiers like investment grade corporates and uh, government bonds. Um, so there are some good examples there. Like one fund that stands out is uh, 24 Dynamic Bonds. Um, that has had yields around 
four percent ish and they are basically spread um all across different niches of the bond market so they have government bonds they have high yields uh, but they also have some quite interesting niche um exposures like asset-backed securities um so it should hopefully be a portfolio that kind of weathers the ups and downs of the bond market a bit better that the ups and downs of the bond market there can be some quite bad downs can't there and some, and to a certain extent that's linked to what's going on in the wider economy and and that's i mean that is a consideration as well when when you're investing in bonds whether whether it's corporate bonds or government bonds yeah i mean there are huge risks facing uh, bonds in general at the minute um government bonds could be really exposed if um as has been discussed um a lot in recent months you do get this uh, tick up of inflation um, as a result of all the fiscal stimulus that is kind of sloshing around the global economy at the minute. Um, and then uh, high yields and emerging market debt, for example, um, emerging markets could be very prone to um, the coronavirus lockdown and the aftermath. And then um, high yield, uh, that is notoriously exposed to um, the US energy sector, which um, has had its own troubles with what's happened with the oil price. And, you know, high yields used to be more commonly called junk for a reason. There can be some uh, some very risky companies there. Um, so, yeah, it, I mean, generally it may be a case of just diversifying as much as you can because all these asset classes, all these areas have their own risks. Um, so, as always, you're hoping to kind of offset one down with an up somewhere else. There is an alternative, which we will talk to Algie about in more detail later, but it'll be good to talk to you, Dave, about... Uh, something that came in the news this week about this style of of income investing, which is taking your income, taking capital gains as income. Mm. And that is, I mean, that can be a a very viable alternative. And lots of there are lots of fund managers that that really like that strategy. But this week, if so, if private investors are considering this, this strategy this week, there was some potential news that may scupper that kind of investment strategy. Yeah, it's all very uh, vague at the minute, but um, it could be potentially quite bad news. Um, So, as as you said, people are more interested in taking gains from capital now. Um, That might gain more traction because of what's happening in the UK equity income market. Um, But now the Chancellor wants this review of how capital gains tax is treated. And he basically wants to bring it more closely in line with um, how income tax is treated. Now, we don't know what that will actually entail. And there are many, um, I suppose, routes this could go down. Um, But if you look at the way um, investments are taxed, then generally uh, capital gains tax, there's a higher threshold and a lower rate charged compared with income tax. Um, So if the Chancellor does look at that and they think, you know, we want to bring this more in line with income tax, we want to charge higher rates, we want to give people less of an allowance before they um, before they have to pay that tax, uh, then that could really change the equation. Um, and that could make that whole kind of total return approach a lot less attractive than it currently is. Yeah, I've, I've read a lot of commentary about the the, uh, the potential CGT review and changes this week. Um, I mean, it's, it's presented as a tax simplification uh, <laughs> initiative, but, but I think the, the worries are that this is really uh, a tax grab uh, and potentially a tax on wealth creation to plug some of the deficit from the, the huge spending that you, uh, you referred to earlier. Yeah, it could be uh, one of the many pain points that we'll see in the wake of this uh, massive uh, spending spree. But yes, it's definitely one to, to keep an eye on. And like I said, it really could have a major influence on you know, how you should be kind of 
getting access to that money. Yeah, that's and, uh, that all is not lost for uh, for those needing an income. Uh, yeah, thanks for uh, for some really interesting options there. Cheers, though. No worries. So, yeah, as Dave mentioned, one of the big problems with equity income funds is that most of them are holding all the same things, which is fine when you can rely on those big payments. But it's not good at a time like now when when the big income contributing sectors are making cuts. Absolutely. As we heard from Ian at NetWealth, it's become a very crowded trade, the, that, that income trade. I mean, perhaps it's worth talking through um, some of the sectors where, where most of the damage has been done uh, and maybe even looking at some of the sectors where things are perhaps looking a little safer. Mm, yeah, so I think obviously Shell is the, is the big story because it is, I mean, as we said at the beginning, $25 billion returned to shareholders. It's a sizable chunk just coming from one company. But then the other really, really sizable chunk is from the site financial sector. And the outlook for the banks is is not good. Even if they were being allowed to return cash to the same extent as they were before, that cash just isn't flowing in like it was. There are so many difficulties, as as Emma writes in the in the news article this week. The extent of the problems facing the big banks is is extraordinary because it's not just the, the low interest rate, it's also the returns, the returns on equity that these banks are going to be able to generate is I mean it's fallen so far, um, Emma's done some calculations, and HSB's return, HSBC's return on equity is expected to be just three point two percent this year, and that's down from eight point eight percent last year. That's a big old fall. Did she say what's doing the damage? Coronavirus, one assumes. Well, <laughs> yeah. Um, but but uh, you know, and then the sort of uh, the longer term impacts of coronavirus. But you know, think think about some of the UK lenders, you know, a softening mortgage market. Mm-hmm bad loans well that's the thing yeah the rising bad debts unemployment it's not a good outlook for the banks and they are the big dividend payers and it's a reason why a reason why investors hold them so actually the outlook for share price growth from Lloyds from HSBC from RBS isn't good because why would you hold them if they're not going to be able to pay pay dividends they're not growing they're not indeed and I think uh, my understanding is they account for a very big chunk of the 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 lost dividends so Mm -hmm. far this year. Mm-hmm. Um, the other sector that I know you, you've looked in detail at is, is telecoms. You mentioned BT earlier and uh, jumping at the opportunity to cut its dividend during this crisis. But, but your view, um, I know for a long time, has been that, that the telcos have probably should have done this quite quite some time ago. Vodafone actually did cut Yeah, so Vodafone, was a year, Vodafone got a new chief executive and he came and he was actually the chief financial officer under the old chief executive. The old chief executive was good, but the I think his big fault was why they continued to pay that dividend when they were investing a lot at that time. There was one year that the company's capital expenditure was 10 billion euros. It was the highest of the FTSE 100, even though Vodafone was nowhere near the biggest company in the FTSE. It spent more than any other company in the UK, which is just crazy. And then was also had this massive payout. But yeah, the new chief executive came in, cut the dividend, which was sensible. But actually now the question with Vodafone is, has it gone far enough? And the answer is no way because the proposed dividend for next year is nowhere near covered by forecast earnings and those forecast earnings were made even before the news this week about the Huawei being unraveled from from 5G and for both BT and Vodafone that's a really really big story yeah so building telecoms networks is uh, an expensive business especially mm-hmm. when you've half built it and you have to rip rip some of the kit out yeah um, and we, uh, do we know the cost of, of that there's all sorts of I mean they're complete numbers that are plucked out of the air flying around. BT said, so when there was a cap put on how much Huawei equipment you could have in in the 5G network, uh, BT said it was going to cost them about £500 million. 
and they haven't updated that in light of the news this week. They've said five hundred million pounds to take take Huawei down to thirty five percent, but actually now they've got to take it out completely. And the story I don't think is over yet because, I mean, if this is a security issue, which, which it is, and the reason we can't have Huawei in the five G network is because they're worried about the Chinese government being able to spy on all our calls. Why is it allowed on the four G network and the three G network and the broadband network, of which that's BT's biggest cost consistently? Yeah, and I think all of us uh, working from home over the past few months uh, have all, have all become acutely aware that the the UK's telecoms infrastructure probably needs a bit of money spent on it, and yeah. this looks like a big bill coming down the road for these guys, and 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 that yeah. that really doesn't spell. Um, much good for the for the dividends coming. No, from and I think they probably will get some government support. They're going to have to, but yeah, I mean, if they are, if they're getting government support in the same way that the banks are, it is not going to be a very popular decision if they continue to pay dividends. If they're accepting taxpayer money to help them deal with the situation, which they've got themselves into, they just haven't invested enough themselves. Using Huawei was is always a decision that's being made to do things as cheap as possible because it is cheaper than the alternatives, which are made by Nokia and Ericsson. But then in Singapore, they have not used Huawei equipment at all in, in rolling out 5G. And that was clearly a very sensible decision. They often seem to do things the right way in Singapore. Yeah, it, it, it is absolutely fascinating. I mean, you know, these are big sectors, big, big payers. Mm-hmm. Um, is anywhere safe? Well, the one area that's looking safer is the pharma sector. I mean, pharmaceuticals have done extremely well as a sector in the last few months. People are piling in because they are... That people are assuming that the pharmaceutical sector will actually could actually be a beneficiary of the current pandemic, but there were some interesting numbers from Boots Walgreens last week. Boots, obviously, I mean, a big part of um, of that business is is the pharmacy, and their numbers suggested that people are not getting prescription medicines that they were doing to the same extent as they were doing before. And that's because people there, there are fewer elective surgeries, there's less cancer treatment going on, fewer people are being diagnosed with things that aren't coronavirus. People are staying away from doctors and from hospitals. And the extent of the damage to Boots Walgreen was was so severe that they had to take a $2 billion impairment on the value of Boots UK. And, I mean, that's got big implications for the pharmaceutical companies, which are not making money from coronavirus treatments, but they are making money from everything else. And it's something that Harriet Klarfeld wrote a bit about this week, some of the big US companies, and both AstraZeneca and GSK, they make most of their money from things that may, may be in lower demand. And actually, that means their earnings outlook is not anywhere near as strong as the forecasts currently suggest. So their dividends maybe aren't as safe as, as, they, as they currently look. And yet that sector has been an incredible performer. I think AstraZeneca is now the biggest company in the UK. Yeah, which is, I mean, it seems completely ludicrous, but... Um, we will see. Mm. <laughs> we will see. Yeah. Um, another sector that people rely on for, for income is utilities. And we know there was some there was some trouble at the ranch this week in, in the form of an off-gem review, which we've written about in the magazine, that threatens some of the, the, the dividends of, of, uh, of the big power utilities or infrastructure plays like National Grid and SSE. Nilushi Karuna-Ratne, who wrote that piece, um, is going to now speak to us about utilities and whether their income prospects are, uh, are likely to be quite as savaged as, uh, as we've seen in some other sectors. Hi, Lucy. How are you doing? Hi, fine, thank you. How are you? Not too bad, thank you. Yeah, so we, we've been speaking about the various sectors and, and how their dividends have been affected by COVID-19 or perhaps some of their underlying financial issues that they've been hiding for years. 
you've been looking at utilities, and I know there's been some news recently um, out of the sector. T- tell us what's going on. Uh, and I guess there's two angles to that. There's the sort of power side of things and the water side of things. Yeah, absolutely. So when it comes to utilities, they've traditionally been seen as these safe havens, the, the kind of fairly boring companies that you can rely on, particularly you know, in times of recession, they typically tend to outperform other equities. But this crisis has been a little bit different. Um, so what happens with utilities is typically very stable demands, and that translates to stable earnings. So during this crisis, there's been a huge drop off in demand because um, industrial and commercial uh, sectors have shut down. So despite a lot of us staying at home uh, and you know living and working, using more energy and electricity at home, because these businesses aren't uh, operational, the overall demand has dropped. Uh, so what's happened is that these energy and water companies, therefore, collecting less revenue. And as businesses have come under more pressure, there's also a, a heightened risk of bad debt as well. So what we've seen with the most recent uh, results from the likes of um, National Grid, uh, SSC, 7 Trent, is that they're having to make provisions for these bad debts. And they're also guiding to a hit to operating profit this year. So National Grid, for example, they're expecting a £400 million uh, hit to underlying operating profit this year. But it's perhaps not as bad as you think, because the way the regulatory models work for both water and energy companies is that they can collect a shortfall in revenue over future years. So in terms of the dividend case, I wouldn't get too worried from that perspective. I think the bigger thing to worry about and something we covered recently is kind of the potential hit from a regulatory standpoint. So what happened with the water companies was off what came out with their final determination for the next five years in December. So the water companies are kind of set, if you like. It's not great news. So their returns have been squeezed and some of the private companies are a bit kind of disgruntled. They're appealing to the CMA. But for the listed players, they've kind of knuckled down and said, OK, we accept this. We'll get on with it. But for the energy companies, it's a different story because that process is ongoing. So Ofgem is still working through its plans for between 2021 and 2026. And they came out last week with what's called their draft determination. And as things stand, if that was to be enacted, it would basically halve the allowed returns that energy companies are going to make. Um, slightly alarming. Um, and you saw the likes of National Grid SSC, their share prices actually dropped on the day, a little bit of panic in the market. But bear in mind that this is just a draft determination. There's still some negotiation to come. And um, Ofgem may yet kind of soften its stance. In terms of what this does for the income case, those dividends weren't necessarily looking so secure before Ofgem came out. So in terms of dividend cover, I think National Grid, its dividend was covered by about one time, 1.2 times um, EPS, and for SSC, it was a little bit lower. So the dividend cover wasn't great. And if earnings are squeezed, that's going to uh, drop a bit further. But as it stands, because this is just a draft determination, analysts aren't penciling in any cuts just yet. So kind of, if you like, the the overall view to take right now is to don't panic, don't make any rash decisions. These companies kept their dividends as they are, they increased them at the uh, full year results stage. And um, they're not making any changes right now. The analysts aren't making any changes right now. But it's sort of a be prepared, if you like. That's really interesting, though, because if analysts aren't making changes if the forecasts aren't changing and yet people maybe are making investment decisions at the moment based on these forecasts which which may change it may change i mean those analyst forecasts are based on the knowledge that the next regulatory regulatory period is going to be tougher but their kind of view is right now we know it's going to be tougher 
we don't think this is necessarily off Gem's final position, so we're not changing our position right now. Walter, I mean, we've had the regulatory um, uh, update. We know what's coming there. Are those dividends perhaps safer than, than the energy dividends? For now, it, it seems like it is. The, the, again, the analysts weren't too concerned um, with with what came up then. They, they seem to think across the three listed players, things are okay. What what's, was more concerning for them was when COVID came along. So United Utilities, it put out its policy at the beginning of this year. Uh, what's happened with all these companies, they've shifted. Normally what they do is they promise something like, we'll grow our dividend in line with uh, some measure of inflation. And that measure used to be retail price inflation. Now they've all switched over to something which is a little bit more of a mouthful. Uh, the consumer price index, including owner-occupiers housing costs, uh, otherwise known as CPIH. Um, and basically what United Utilities said at the um, start of the year uh, is that they were going to grow it, I think it's at least in line with um, CPIH, um, but they put that policy under review with what's happening with um, COVID-19. Not necessarily going to be making any changes, but it's also something to be aware of. Um, Seven is basically stuck to their policy. We're going to grow our dividend in line with CPIH. And um, Pennon has been a little bit more generous with their dividend, but they had to rebase it because they're um, selling their waste management arm Viridor to private equity. But other than that, things are looking okay in the water industry right now. It's good. Good to have a slightly more reassuring sector in the, in the income space because there aren't very many others. <laughs> I mean, that's another reason why to kind of stick around and not make any panic decision when it comes to what's happening with the energy companies and Ofgem, because there's not a lot of choice out there right now. So I wouldn't necessarily advise making an exit from them. Great. Well, thank you very much, Nalishi. Good to speak to you. Thanks, you too. So now we've got uh, Algie Hall to uh, talk to us about perhaps what we can do to, to rethink uh, our approach to income. We've heard about some savage dividend cuts across the UK market. We've heard of a sector that's safe, but, you know, perhaps not without not entirely risk-free. And Algy, I know this is something we've been thinking a lot about, um, particularly in respect of how you can create an income when dividend uh, streams are drying up. Yeah, well, I mean, I suppose in terms of rethinking um, income, really what we're talking about is a kind of new, new approach to actually, you know, what, what investors should be looking for, as well as how they can get cash from their portfolio. Because one one thing's clear: if the income isn't being paid out, it's not there. You're not going to. There's no um, magic pixie dust that um, can be sprinkled onto these stocks to make, start make them make make them paying income again. And I think one of the problems, actually, which we're um, companies face up to now, is that income has kind of been fetishized a bit in terms of um, it's been seen as an attractive attribute in and of itself. Whereas in actual fact, income or the dividend should always just be a residual. You know, in, in terms of looking at income stops, stocks and trying to use the dividend to identify value, um, what it's really telling you, if it's, if it's worth looking at, is that a company is generating surplus cash, which it can't find anything better to do with. And so it's healthy enough to be paying that out. Whereas it, what we've actually had and what, um, what we're now facing up to the reality of is a lot of companies with very mature businesses, often very capital-intensive businesses, actually, which have often been struggling to make a decent um, return. They've all the, all the same, they've been paying out dividends because that is, has become their reason d'etre for whatever reason. And um, it's been making their business weaker. So um, 
so the, so the whole um, dividend game is up for these companies. Adi, one of the things you just said there about the companies not having anything better to do with their cash, I mean, that is surely the fundamental problem because the super-duper successful companies, I mean, especially if we're looking in America, they all, all of their excess cash is being reinvested into growth, into, re, into growing the business, taking the business to the next level. And in the UK, the priority seems to have been dividends. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the problem is a lot of these companies, um, it hasn't made that much sense to reinvest into growth. Um, the returns aren't there. So, um, I mean, what, what you have to think about is, you know, other acquisitions should debt be paid down if there's if if those aren't options and investing into the actual growth of the business doesn't seem like it's going to have a good return then return the cash to shareholders so they can reinvest it with into companies which maybe have something better to do with the money or you know if they need an income stream use it for those purposes but um i mean there are lots of companies which generate surplus cash some of them actually have, you know, quite good businesses. So you think of a company like um, Rightmove or even, even Next over the years, you know, they've returned huge amounts of surplus cash to shareholders because um, the businesses are well managed. They don't take up too much capital, especially in Rightmove's case. Um, and so they're in a wonderful position to return cash to shareholders. And also it's not just by dividend. Um, I mean, this is one of the problems with talking about income investing. It's a bit myopic because... Companies have, uh, you know, other ways they can return cash to shareholders. And one of them is the share buyback, which a lot of companies do. Which Next and, does a lot of. And Next has done a lot of, and, 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 and Rightmove as well. And, um, I mean, really, as an investor, unless you actually need to have the cash in your pocket, a share buyback is just a very efficient dividend reinvestment policy, really. That's the best way to look at it. So um, it's an incredibly important part of capital returns. And then the, the other thing which gets forgotten about um, and, and really should be factored in is what's happening to debt. Because if you've got a company which is um, paying out, you know, let's say a billion in dividends every year, but the debt's going up by two billion, then, I mean, is that really a return um, of capital to shareholders? I mean, it's a transfer of value from the equity to um to debt so um you 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 really have this um quite confused picture if you're just focusing on income I guess, um, and we've actually seen some figures this week um, that sort of reinforce that point from uh, Janice Henderson, big debt survey, which um, shows that corporate debt is, 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 is you know, at its highest level ever um, in the UK. Um, pensions, I guess, are another interesting factor when it comes to dividends. I mean, you know, you've, you've got companies like BT, which have had enormous pension schemes and often in you know, very significant pension deficits, paying out dividends at the same time. I mean, is this, 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 does, does this, this doesn't seem like it gets taken into account enough in consideration of the dividend. No, I mean, I, I would agree. I think, that, I think this is the whole thing, this kind of, um, you know, fetish for income that I was alluding to. It's kind of as if income and the dividend is good in itself. And that's just not true. It's, um, and, I mean, also, I think one of the... the great concepts which is just totally neglected by people is the concept of the shareholder yield so it is this um just this way of looking at um the amount of capital which flows back to shareholders or comes out of the company to shareholders in a more holistic way so um you know what's happening in terms of money coming in as well as money going out and just you know seeing it in the round it's um it, it, you know it's a concept which is um 
which is O'Shaughnessy Asset Management, which we write about a fair bit in the magazine, are very keen on. It's a very useful and valuable concept. It feels like it's a a fundamental shift is needed, not only in how the company's behaving, but also in people's thinking, because people do look for income. And actually, if there are mm. other options, I mean, how do we get there? Well, I mean, I, I, think, I think actually the, the real answer is we probably don't. You know, we, we are where we are. If, if, you, if you want a dividend, um, then, you know, there are some companies which will still, you know, pay, there are plenty of companies which will pay you one. You just, in term, it's just in terms of yield, it may not, not be that high. And if it is high, you're probably looking at a very insecure dividend. Um, and uh, I mean, I, I suppose really what we're coming to is the question of total return. So dividend is just one part of um, your return. So you get your dividend, but you also get the um, increase in the share price or the decrease in the share price as well. And if you want income, you can, uh, and, you know, tax plays a part in, in, t- in determining whether or not this is the best option, but you just, you just sell part of your um, holding. And there are lots of psychological difficulties with doing this, but actually it all amounts to the same thing. You know, if you're, if you're looking to get, um, create an income for yourself, rather than looking for the company to do it for you, you just sell some of your portfolio. And I mean, interestingly, um, uh, in the investment trust world, we've seen quite a lot of companies, uh, quite a lot of investment trusts, or you know, I say quite a lot of, you know, a handful, I suppose, just turn to this model, just essentially saying, if you want income, we can give you income, but it's, um, it's going to be a dividend based on us selling parts of the holdings and, you know, whatever income we get in from, you know, dividends as well. So um, a lot of the J.P. Morgan um, trusts, um, or you know, a fair few of the J.P. Morgan trusts have done this, um, and probably a lot of other companies or um, investment trusts will have to do this because at the moment, a lot of them are um, pitching themselves as income trusts. The underlying incomes dropped away. They're drawing on something called reserves, which is just an accounting thing, but they're drawing on income reserves, and which means they're just selling part of their capital to maintain a dividend. But um, quite soon they won't have those reserves. I have to go and have a vote with shareholders if they want to carry on returning capital. It's probably going to be quite messy, I'd imagine. You know, there is that total return model, which, um, you know, which can be uh, put in the structure of an investment trust. And actually investors can just do the same with their portfolios if they can uh, bear selling their shares. I guess the other important aspect uh, of total return is that you actually have to keep growing your your portfolio to be able to have the ability to pay the pay the dividends out or your own dividends, your own income stream out of it. So growth growth in in, in a total return world must be more important. Depends. It's just a holistic way of looking at um, you know your your returns. So um, you know I I, I, I can't, you know it's, it's impossible to say whether growth is going to continue to re-rate and be so popular and, you know, what type of growth companies are going to benefit from, um, you know, investor enthusiasm and, you know, whether the the mix in there based on, you know, mature companies paying out dividends will actually prove the better bet in the future. I mean, it's, you know, it's down to investment style in the end and that's um, uh, largely a kind of personal matter for, you know, what works for investors, how they understand the market. Um, so yeah, but I mean, like, you know, growth can feature in, it does feature in it. It's just, you know, it's, it's kind of liberating, um, 
oneself from those constraints of I must have income, you know, for my investment. It's um, yeah, you can, you know, you can create income from growth. But 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 also, if you if you need it, I mean, the, the one of the one of the problems, one of the things which people have been attracted to dividends for is that they it feels like you're getting income come rain or shine. So um, the worst thing with total return is that if you want to create a steady income stream from selling shares, there are going to be times when the market is, you know, flattened and you're going to have to sell a certain uh, proportion of your portfolio to get a certain amount of income. And that portion of your portfolio that you're going to have to liquidate in order to get your income is going to be greater when the market's um, lowest. And also when the market's lowest, that portion that you... um, uh, have to liquidate would have greater value in the future as the market recovers. So, it's, um, you know, there are real issues in terms of operating this kind of um, approach. Absolutely. There's a lot, as we discussed earlier, like a lot more hard work than just getting a nice income check, uh, dividend check every month. Yeah, and so yeah, psychologically, it's just it's very it's very hard. It's um, yeah, not not you know not nice. As as you can read about in the magazine this week. Yes, yeah, with um, our big um, behavioural finance feature. (laughs) Great. Well, thanks, Algie. Good to speak to you. Thank you. That is all we have time for on this week's podcast, but I hope there is plenty of food for thought there for anyone who's been on the receiving end of the UK's dividend savaging. It's a subject we'll be revisiting regularly in the magazine in the coming weeks, so if you don't want to miss out, make sure you take up our special podcast offer. Get four weeks of Investors Chronicle in print and online for just £4. Go to investorschronicle.co.uk forward slash podcast sub, one word, and the link is in the show notes. Before we go, let me just talk you through what else we have in this week's mag. Our private investor diarist, John Rosier, is back with his monthly portfolio update, and I'm glad to report he is back in positive territory for the year. And Chris Dillo has updated his quarterly No Thoughts portfolios to see which investment style is currently doing best in these topsy-turvy markets. We have already mentioned Megan's fantastic research into UK dividend cuts and what to expect next, which is this week's news feature. And there's more on the off-jam of Walgreens stories we mentioned, the latter being our first look at the US reporting season, which we will be revisiting regularly in upcoming issues. Dave has been busy this week looking at ways to inflation-proof your portfolio, which could be a possible consequence of the stimulus he referred to, as well as fund concentration in the wake of the recent troubles with Boohoo and Wirecard. But the main feature this week is Algie's magnus opus on the five major behavioural mistakes that cost investors money and the seven things we can do to overcome them. Tame Your Brain, How to Beat the Behaviours that Can Wreck Your Investment Returns. Thank you to all of our guests, Nilushi, Algie and Dave. And thanks, of course, to my co-host, Megan. And thank you all for listening. In the meantime, pick up the Megan All Good News Agents and we'll be back again next week. Take care. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.